This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on fibromyalgia. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Fibromyalgia is a common condition. Studies show the prevalence in the general population at between 0.5 and 5%. Fibromyalgia causes pain and distress and affects patients' quality of life. Importantly, it's a chronic illness and patients can expect exacerbations and remissions over time. So how should we diagnose and manage this condition? To tell us, we have on the line Professor Daniel Claw, who is a rheumatologist and professor of anesthesiology at the University of Michigan. And importantly, Dan is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Dan, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is fibromyalgia? Fibromyalgia is a common clinical condition characterized by widespread pain, fatigue, sleep problems, memory problems, um, and another of, of other symptoms that have to do with central nervous system activation. Uh, so this symptom complex of widespread pain, fatigue, memory problems, and sleep problems is sort of what we call a fibromyalgia phenotype that we're looking for um, to diagnose this condition. Okay, thank you. And how do you make the diagnosis? There are a number of accepted criteria. There are screening tools, um, but simply you start by identifying an individual that has widespread pain or pain in different areas of the body that can't be accounted for by known ongoing damage or inflammation. But in addition to the pain that these individuals have, these other central nervous system symptoms like sleep problems, memory problems, fatigue, mood problems uh, often co-occur as well. And it's identifying that entire symptom complex that we recommend to diagnose individuals with fibromyalgia and all of the screening criteria are doing that in one way or another as well. They're looking for widespread pain plus fatigue and sleep problems or, or other combinations of those symptoms. Okay, thank you. And, and tell us a bit about the scientific basis of, of fibromyalgia, if, if you can. Well, there's really been in the last couple decades an explosion of knowledge, not just about fibromyalgia, but about the role of the central nervous system in causing pain, so much so that the International Association for the Study of Pain, or IASP, um, a few years ago actually formally voted to recognize a third mechanism of pain or descriptor of pain. Um, And this is a mouthful, but clinicians will start to hear this word more and more. It's called nosoplastic pain. But this type of pain um, is best exemplified by fibromyalgia, but This is front and center in headache, irritable bowel, um, temporomandibular joint disorder, and a number of other common pain conditions where, again, just as in fibromyalgia, the pain seems to be coming from a central nervous system pain or sensory amplification problem rather than due to a problem in the area of the body where the person might be experiencing pain. Okay, thank you. And what tests should you do? if you suspect somebody has fibromyalgia? There are no tests that we can do 
to confirm the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So the testing that's done is really done to rule out other things that might mimic fibromyalgia. And the degree of testing that needs to be done has a lot to do with how long the person has had symptoms and exactly how they present. So I'll just give you the, the two ends of the continuum. The, the one end of the continuum would be an individual that you see at age 40, but starting um, in her teens, this person um, has had a number of different regional pain conditions like uh, painful menstrual periods, headaches, irritable bowel. Um, and this individual has had um, a number of confirmed diagnoses like that over the course of her life. And then you see her at age 40. And the question, because the pain is widespread, is this fibromyalgia? Um, the answer is yes. At the other end of the continuum, though, someone who presents acutely or subacutely with widespread pain and fatigue needs a very extensive workup because then you would be making sure that you're ruling out uh, incident autoimmune diseases or um, other types of problems that could present subacutely. So, again, a lot of it is looking for the hi history of people having pain in different regions of their body or having diagnoses like headache irritable bowel, chronic fatigue syndrome, those conditions that we know um, are really almost the same as fibromyalgia, that literally people just have pain in different areas of their body and they accumulate those different diagnostic labels. Okay, thank you. And tell us about any recent advances in assessment or in, in diagnosis. There are a set of criteria now that are entirely self-report that uh, the lead author is Fred Wolf, and these are called the American College of Rheumatology criteria. They first came out in 2010, then they were revised in 2011, and now again in 2016. Um, and these are simple criteria that uh, on the criteria, they first asked the person to check on a body map how many out of a total of 19 regions, how many different regions the person has had pain in in the last week. And that's scored from zero to 19. And then on the other side of the questionnaire, we ask people about whether they have and, and how severe their sleep problems, memory problems, and fatigue are. And those are each scored from zero to three. Um, and then there's a couple other questions that each get one point each. But you basically can come up with a quantitative score using those fibromyalgia criteria and a score of 13 or greater is said to be diagnostic of fibromyalgia. But a point of emphasis here is that many, many studies um, done by our group and others have shown that people who don't meet criteria for fibromyalgia, but still have a high score on that measure, we call that higher degrees of fibromyalgia-ness or using the new term, this would mean say that this person has evidence of nosoplastic pain. That the higher the, that fibromyalgia score, the less well that individual will respond to surgical procedures meant to relieve pain, like knee or hip replacement surgery. The less well they'll respond to opioids to treat their acute or chronic pain. So that measure doesn't just give you a diagnostic label. It also tells you which types of therapies um, are likely to work and which ones aren't likely to work because some of the classic treatments that we use to treat pain, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, opioids, injections, surgical procedures um, are not going to work typically in people with fibromyalgia or nosoplastic pain because those treatments 
typically work out in the periphery rather than in the central nervous system, which is where this pain is coming from. Okay, thank you. That's that's very helpful. And we're starting to edge into management, but just let's finish with diagnosis with one last question. What are the common pitfalls in making the diagnosis, would you say? There's a number of pitfalls. People um, are often concerned about the lack of a diagnostic test, and um, so they get cons overly concerned, I think, sometimes about ruling other things out. And of course, that's important, but the, in general, if you draw some laboratory tests like a sedimentation rate and a C-reactive protein, and those are normal, um, you have not entirely, but more or less ruled out a, a autoimmune disease or an infection as a cause of the person's pain. Uh, some other simple screening tests like thyroid function tests and, and general labs can rule out other things. So uh, I think one of the pitfalls is just becoming more comfortable with the diagnosis and, and a limited screening panel before you confirm the diagnosis. At the other end of the continuum, it can be the case that people get so comfortable saying that almost anything is fibromyalgia that they miss uh, things that they should be picking up. Again, we don't wanna take someone with early rheumatoid arthritis or lupus and um, have them get the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and not get the the treatments for that autoimmune disease that might be really helpful and required for that individual. Okay, thank you. And, and absolutely, last question on, on diagnosis. Um, is it fair to say some people can have fibromyalgia plus an, another condition, sometimes another rheumatological condition? Absolutely, and thank you for reminding me because that might be the biggest pitfall of all is that Providers have a tendency that once someone has a label on them, like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or osteoarthritis, that they don't think of this individual also having fibromyalgia or nosoplastic pain. And uh, that's at their peril and at the peril of their patients because, uh, in fact, statistically, there's far more people that have fibromyalgia superimposed upon another condition like rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis or lupus than that have it as a standalone um, condition. So it's really important for providers to always be on the lookout for fibromyalgia, even if that person carries one or more other labels where, the, where they do have some type of a nociceptive or inflammatory pain condition. That doesn't at all mean they don't also have fibromyalgia. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management. Tell us what is the mainstay of management of fibromyalgia? First, education. It's important to emphasize to the patient uh, that this, you know, is a serious condition in that it causes them a lot of symptoms, but it is not an autoimmune or inflammatory disease. There is not any inflammation going on in their body that's going to actually cause permanent damage to their tissues. So um, again, education about what this is, is important. And as part of that education, emphasizing to the patient that a lot of the techniques that work best in fibromyalgia are self-management techniques, non-drug therapies, um, getting more active, uh, trying to sleep better, trying to reduce stress. Even now we're realizing things about diet and nutrition that can be helpful. So a big part of the education is making 
the patient understand that a lot of the treatments are things that they can do themselves and, and to really try to motivate the patient to try a lot of non-drug therapies in addition to the drugs that the providers might be trying, the centrally acting non-opioid analgesics um, that can be helpful, but almost always have to be combined with non-drug therapies to, to be effective. Okay, thank you. And, and tell us about any recent advances in, in management, if, if there are any. Well, again, I think the advances would be, um, first and foremost, make sure you do the education. Uh, cognitive behavioral approaches are very helpful uh, and uh, exercise. So those are sort of the mainstays. And the drug side, there are um, a number of drugs that are approved for use in fibromyalgia in the United States. They're not approved in Europe, but these would be drugs like um, gabapentinoids, like pregabalin, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, like duloxetine or milnasopran. Uh, and although they're not approved, the third category of drugs that can be helpful in fibromyalgia and has a strong evidence base uh, are the tricyclic drugs. So tricyclics, gabapentinoids, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors are the preferred drugs to use for fibromyalgia because these are centrally acting analgesics and fibromyalgia is um, at its core a central nervous system problem. Um, again, we generally will avoid opioids in these individuals, not just because opioids don't work, but because our group and others have done studies suggesting the body's own endogenous opioid system might be involved in the pathogenesis of fibromyalgia. So I say this not to be dramatic, but I say um, that giving a patient with fibromyalgia an opioid is like throwing kerosene on a fire. You, that opioid may very well make the underlying process worse and often does. Um, and so these are individuals that you have to be particularly careful about using opioids in. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned um, exercise, which I guess is going to be a challenge in patients who feel tired or who are in pain. Um, is, is that right? And if so, how do you overcome that? Yeah, well, good question. And when I give talks, I, I emphasize that uh, when I'm talking to a patient about this, I use the word activity, not exercise, because exercise scares them. And it is the case that the amount of activity that you need to do to improve pain is fairly modest. You don't have to get up to an aerobic threshold of exercise. So uh, a terrific exercise for chronic pain patients is walking or any kind of a stationary equipment, a stationary bike, a treadmill, things like that. Again, they don't have to get up to a high aerobic level um, as they might to get a cardiovascular benefit. The, the benefit of exercise and we used to think it was just aerobic exercise, but now it's clear that stretching, strengthening, and aerobic exercise can all be helpful. Um, but uh, a point of emphasis is that you don't have to do a lot. And the other thing that I emphasize to patients is that the first symptom that they'll often find gets better when they become more active, now I'm using the right term, um, is fatigue. Um, we all know that if we sit around all day, uh, we get tired just from inactivity and I coach my patients to sort of understand that, that the first thing they might notice as they begin an activity program is an improvement in their fatigue.
Okay, thank you. And let's move on to pitfalls in, in management. What are the common pitfalls in management, would you say? One of the common pitfalls is trying to manage fibromyalgia with drugs alone. The, the drugs can be very helpful, but you really have to incorporate drug and non-drug therapies. Um, and so that would probably be one of the first things that I would say would be a common pitfall. Okay, thank you. And um, the last question, which is about uh, a question about questions, really. Are there any other common questions that you're asked by doctors or other healthcare professionals about this condition? And if so, what are those questions and what are the answers? Well, there's a lot of uh, questions. Uh, I think there's a misperception that all individuals that have fibromyalgia have a lot of psychological comorbidities and that that is always the, the sort of thing that drives symptom expression in fibromyalgia. It is certainly true that um, fibromyalgia patients have higher rates of anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, a number of psychological problems than the general population. But that's true of virtually every chronic pain condition. Um, and fibromyalgia really isn't much different than other chronic pain conditions in that regard. Um, and it is also true that uh, in many of these individuals, there is a lot of psychological comorbidity, but more and more of the studies are suggesting that the psychological comorbidity comes because of the fact that they're not taken seriously and that their pain and their other symptoms are not relieved. And uh, these patients, uh, not surprisingly, become quite frustrated um, over time. So there, in fact, there's a scientific medical construct, construct called catastrophizing, which means that that patients like this have this notion that everything in their life is sort of catastrophic. And until fairly recently, psychologists in the pain field, you know, saw that fibromyalgia patients had a lot of catastrophizing and said, well, maybe that's a characterological trait that got them to have fibromyalgia. But now recent studies are suggesting that catastrophizing gets dramatically better if you simply can do something to make their pain better. Um, it's more of a, a state than a trait. So um, I, I guess, uh, you know, take these individuals seriously, um, listen a lot to them. They want to be um, listened to and heard, and then uh, really encourage them to keep trying different non-drug therapies. Probably the thing that's most surprising in my 30-year career of studying fibromyalgia and pain is how rapidly um, our evidence base for non-drug therapies for pain has increased. Things that I was dismissive of, um, and not just I, the, the entire sort of uh, Western medical field uh, a couple decades ago was dismissive of acupuncture, chiropractic manipulation, yoga, tai chi. Um, and these are now all becoming sort of mainstays of uh, integrative therapies for chronic pain patients. Um, so uh, again, I think that probably the biggest message is Keep encouraging your patients to try new therapies. None of our therapies work, whether it's a drug or a non-drug therapies, none of them work in more than one out of three people we give them to. So the name of the game here is to help your patient keep moving forward, keep trying new things until they find the right combination of the right drug for them, the, the couple non-drug therapies for them that really improve their overall symptom control and can help manage their disease. Okay. Thank you very much, Dan. 
And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant conditions. Thank you once again.